you know it's sort of the whole thing of voice matters i think with marginalized groups who have never had the opportunity to tell their own stories there is really such a hunger because the minute you storyify them in a digital form you're sort of conferring credibility on them you're saying this story counts right it's worth being told it's worth sharing etc everybody and welcome to Pretty Good Podcast, Digital Rights in the Asia-Pacific with Engage Media. I'm Red. I'm Sarah and today we'll be talking about digital storytelling, particularly the stories of marginalized groups. When it comes to technology, digital technology, all kinds of technology, unfortunately, the perspective that's heard of, that's written about, that's reported on the most is the Global North one. Most of the technology, of course, comes from Silicon Valley comes from the global north, as I mentioned. And many of those uh, decision makers are men, are cisgender. And when it comes to digital rights, we want to ensure that we are inclusive. We hear all voices and all perspectives. Speaking of different perspectives, our guest for this episode is doing this work, ensuring that the points of views of women, LGBTQ communities, domestic workers, and other marginalized groups are heard especially in the online space. And without further ado, here's our conversation. Today, we are joined by Bishaka Data, who is the Executive Director of Points of View, an organization based in Mumbai, India, that seeks to build and amplify the voices of women and other marginalized genders and groups. Hi, Bishaka. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Red. Thanks so much for having me on the show. No, thank you yeah, for it, coming it, to... Start us off, could you tell us a bit about Point of View? And I already reiterated what is on your website, which is that you seek to build and amplify the voices of women and other marginalized genders and groups. Sure. So uh, basically, we work with a number of marginalized groups. And the reason we say marginalized genders is also to include trans and non-binary people and communities. But the groups that we currently work with range from women in low-income communities, both rural and urban, LGBTQI plus communities, sex workers, women with disabilities. We also work with a lot of internet users or sort of the digital rights community. And finally, last but not least, after sort of the pandemic started, we realized that domestic workers are a group that we really need to start working with. So that's sort of the broad range of uh, groups and genders that we work with right now. And apart from point of view, you work with other organizations and you wear many hats actually. And if we mentioned all of this, I think we'll need a lot of time, but can you tell us about the other work that you do? For example, we're very interested in digital rights and you're part of the Wikimedia yeah. group as well. Can you tell us about such work? Sure. The uh, And I'm actually trying to cut down the number of hats. But, <laughs> <laughs> the, oh, but I think uh, one of the identities or work, my sort of non-day job things that I'm really fond of is 
I'm currently an editor on Wikipedia and I edit in English language Wikipedia and I help groups actually, uh, you know, again, women's rights groups or any of the other groups we work with actually ensure that the representation on Wikipedia changes, right? And it's not so much like white cis male oriented, but really accounts for sort of the diversity around the world. But the way I came to be becoming an editor at Wikipedia is actually from 2010 to 2015. I was on the board of trustees of the Wikimedia Foundation, which operates Wikipedia. And that's how I sort of got fascinated with editing and learned about it. I think more than a Wikipedia editor, I'm a Wikipedia evangelist because I really believe in sort of open knowledge and, you know, collaborative editing and that kind of like moving away from sole authorship, right? Some moving away sort of from some of the proprietary sort of things that we think about when we think about authorship. Uh, and so, that is definitely something that I'm super passionate about. And then I'm on a bunch of um, other boards like right now, for example, APC or the Association for Progressive Communications, also a global organi organization and network that has been working on what was then called information and communication technologies, right? And is now called sort of more like digital rights for the last 30 years. And, amazing, amazing organization and network, you know, really trying to work on the A to Z of digital rights, I'm going to say, like literally from access to whatever set, set our bytes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that spans a long, long time. So I actually wanted to ask you, since you started this work, and in particular when you mentioned that you are helping marginalized communities be better represented online. How would you describe then the digital landscape from when you started to the current one right now? Okay, so we actually at Point of View started working on digital issues, rights, lives, etc. from 2010. And in 2009, just a year before we started, was when Android phones came to India. And we essentially started seeing from 2010, the landscape really turning to where I think it's really reached sort of the peak of that process in 2020. Because now I think with the pandemic and with, you know, work from home or lockdown or whatever we call it, I don't think we can deny anymore that our lives today are digital, right? Which is a combination of the physical and the digital. Because uh, it's very clear that you know, we, like I often say, you if we had to make a statue of ourselves, we would like make something with like, you know, one hand held up holding the mobile, right? And one foot on the ground. And I feel like that's sort of where our bodies are located today, sort of in both spaces and in that intersection between the digital and the physical. So I think we've seen not just the space change, like public space today is both physical and digital, you know, we see also from a gender and sexuality perspective that we are no longer trying to change norms around gender only in physical spaces like the street. We are also trying to change them in 
online public spaces like social media platforms, right? Like Twitter, Facebook, Insta. Similarly, um, I feel like our bodies also, if we think of our data, almost like part of our bodies or an extension of our bodies, I feel like this also flows across both spaces. But I think the thing that, uh, you know, violence flows across both spaces, sexual expression flows across both. So it's sort of a interesting continuum. But I think the big change we're really seeing in the last five years is that on the one hand, more and more marginalized groups and genders are online first. So, for instance, LGBTQI groups in India organize online first and only then, if it's safe enough, will set up physical sort of collectives. But at the same time, we are finding really the impact of so many like negative forces at the same time, right? Like from surveillance to disinformation to, you know, sort of algorithmic decision making, manipulation that has become a little fraught and a little scary to figure out how we can keep this space really sort of free and open for all of us, particularly for people, you know, who are technologically a little marginalized, right, and who struggle a little to come online, let alone figure out, like, what does it mean that your data is being used without your consent by social media platforms? So, like, what does privacy really mean, right? When you have to think about privacy, not just in relation to other human beings who are online, but in relation to the machine, which is constantly collecting data about you. So we're struggling with how to really communicate a lot of these issues to all the constituencies we work with. So all of these digital challenges that you just mentioned, they affect everyone, yeah. but they affect pe some people more than others. So how are vulnerable groups like women and, and girls and uh, non-binary people, how are they more affected than other groups um, in, the, in digital ways? Okay, so let me give you just like three or four examples, for, for instance. So... I think we saw this very starkly during the last six or seven months. Women who are affected by domestic violence and who are, you know, now physically they've lost their mobility because you're stuck inside the four walls of the home. You're experiencing domestic violence within the home. The only way you can get help is now through your phone. But in India, because many women don't own their own mobile phones, they rely on either a shared family phone, right? Or even if they own their own phones, you know, often in many families, the way they use it is monitored by other family members. So you could have a situation, and we have had many situations, where women have said that, you know, even if they knew the number, say, of a helpline, like even if they could pick up their mobile phone to ask for help, they were scared because they felt that their spouse or the person who was inflicting violence on them might actually check the number they were calling, call it back, and then that might lead to further violence, right? So that's one kind of, yeah. I think the second thing we saw is that a lot of poor, low-income communities, say domestic workers, right? Everything in the last six months flowed through the mobile phone. So whether it's health information, whether it's food security, whether it's relief when you literally don't have money to eat, right? 
they again, when you don't have a mobile phone, how do you access that relief? Right. So that becomes a problem. I think similarly with sex workers, what we've seen is that they've sort of gone online in the last few months slowly. Again, faced with literally like no livelihood. But again, you know, when we talk about non-consensual intimate image distribution, many sex workers are really scared that when they are transacting or performing online, that their images will be secretly recorded and will be used either without their consent or might even be used sort of like blackmail to coerce them into having you know, unpaid sex. So I'm just trying to give you a, it's like a patchwork, it's like a quilt of things that's uh, happening to uh, marginalized groups. And of course, the big one is education actually in India. You know, it's really like, if you live in a family and you're a girl and there's one phone and there's say, you know, there's a brother-sister combination, chances are that it will be given to the brother to finish his education while you won't get the same sort of benefits, right? So I'm, I'm putting it a little more starkly maybe or a little more just to make the point, but these are some of the things we've seen. Zooming in again on the Indian situation, I wanted to ask uh, two questions. So one is that are there any protections towards these minorities, these gender minorities and these groups? And two, if there are, how do these legal frameworks or laws protect them also in the digital space? Sure, that's great. So uh, I think one is, you know, we used to have this old archaic colonial era law called Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code. And that actually criminalized what it called uh, unnatural sex, right? That was... Uh, actually with a huge struggle by the LGBTQI community, that finally was dropped a few years ago. So that, first of all, gave some sort of breathing space, right, to queer groups and individuals around the country. The second progressive judgment actually is something that took place, it's called the Nalsa judgment, and it gave trans people in India the right to self-determination. So you could say that you know, regardless of how I present myself in my physical body, that I now have the right to decide which gender I am. And that was super. But the problem is that there was another bill in 2019, which has the, a very nice name, which is the uh, trans protection bill, as we call it, right? Protection of transgender persons. But it took away the right to self-determination. And it said that you actually have to go to a committee which will determine on the basis of sort of physical scrutiny what your gender is, right? So this is like really like not just taking away the right to identity, it's like taking away the right to dignity as well. I mean, which of us would want to go in front of a committee regardless of our gender, right? Like, and have the committee examine us and say, well, I've decided you're a man. I've decided you're a woman. I've decided you're trans. That's just not okay. So, you know, so it's sort of always a little like two steps forward, two steps back. Uh, and very recently, just this week, there were a couple of uh, uh, petitions filed in the Supreme Court 
challenging the sort of marriage frameworks in India, which are heterosexual, and asking that the Special Marriage Act, which is used to deal with inter-religious marriages, also be reframed so that it can account for uh, marriages between same-sex partners, etc., or a wider diversity of genders. So all of these things that are happening are being documented. These stories are hopefully being told, and they're being told through digital uh, platforms and means. Like, are there particular challenges to doing this kind of documentation and storytelling? And what are the recent milestones that been, that have been happening as far as this goes? Okay, thanks. That's actually a great uh, question. Uh, so I think... You know, uh, we do a lot of uh, digital storytelling workshops with marginalized groups. And I think the first challenge is uh, just the level of digital literacy, because uh, you have to have a certain comfort level with technology, right? To be able to sort of use it to tell your own story. And if you've come from a context where you haven't been allowed to use the device freely, then you just don't have the number of hours to give you that kind of sense of comfort and belonging. But that aside, I think what we found is that, you know, it's sort of the whole thing of voice matters. I think with marginalized groups who have never had the opportunity to tell their own stories, there is really such a hunger to sort of talk about your experiences and to talk about them because the minute you storyfy them in a digital form, you're sort of conferring credibility on them. You're saying this story counts, right? It's worth being told, it's worth sharing, etc. So I'd like to say also that that little bit of that, you know, digital skills, initial hesitation is quite easy to overcome. Uh, you know, so that's one of the things. I think the second thing is uh, actually language. We have so many languages in India that really, uh, you know, finding a way to tell those stories, like not just in the original language, but in many other languages so that people, not just people who speak English, but people who speak different languages can really have access to them. That's something we are actually struggling with but using sort of subtitles dubbing translation those type of things right and actually we're going to do something in now a couple of weeks where we are getting together a bunch of trans sex workers who live in rural india and they are really going to uh, about just 10 or 12 of them they're going to make little stories digital stories about uh, their experiences of the last six months, right? We using technology, both positive and negative, as well as both the personal issues, as well as the work-related issues, right? So that we can really uh, use this to try and build some discussion. And actually what I forgot to say is the biggest challenge we are going to come up with now is in the past when we've done digital storytelling workshops, we've done them physic in physical communities together right so it's been a lot of fun and we can hang out and this and that and you know it's it brings a lot of closeness now we're going to have to encapsulate all that into the screen and try and somehow navigate our way yeah 
I really like what you said about the importance of having these stories told and published on the digital space. I wanted to ask about how we can ensure these stories are protected when they are in the digital space. Because as we're seeing, there is also a lot of hate speech online. And it is very easy for people to target these minorities anonymously because there is less consequence. So how do we ensure that these stories are not only told, but also protected and proliferated and spread safely and that they encompass the feelings and the experiences of these communities? Yeah, no, that's actually a big one, Sarah. I think the, uh, you know, I think it's a complicated thing because on the one hand, you know, we can put them out in a way where we contextualize and present them carefully. We can make sure that we have allies on hand or supportive networks, right? So that if there is sort of hate speech and abuse, we can try and contain it to the extent possible, or at least provide some support and solidarity online. Because I think what you tends to happen online is, you know, when one person gets attacked by a mob, it's a very isolating and a very humiliating experience for that person, right? Because you just feel like naked and alone, basically, in public. And everybody is sort of like throwing stones at you, right? The In the form of words. So uh, I think one is allyship is crucial, solidarity, etc. But I want to say that, you know, it can't beyond a point. The platforms have to take responsibility. I mean, not just beyond the point, frankly, from the beginning. It's like imagine walking into a mall in physical space, right? Where there are little, little shops. And imagine getting attacked by someone at the mall. You would rush to the security guard and say, listen, this is what's happened to me. You know, I need some help. And they would do something about it. But I think what we are facing now with social media platforms is even though they have community guidelines and all these sorts of things, there are very few cases of people reporting this kind of hate speech and harassment where any significant or meaningful action is taken against the perpetrator. And frankly, it's a source of real frustration for us because when we do like digital security workshops with say, you know, queer groups or trans groups, you know, or sex worker groups, they keep saying, listen, we, we complain and then nothing happens and we have no idea. So I feel like the time has really come since social media platforms essentially control so much of our speech and our expression online. They have to take some meaningful responsibility, right? To distinguish between what is hate speech, what is actually free speech. We can't just like put everything into the box of free speech, including rape threats, death threats, you know, sort of uh, gender slurs, racial slurs, that kind of thing. So I think that's a huge piece of the puzzle. It's interesting you mention Facebook because a lot of such platforms are under the spotlight. There's the antitrust conversations in the U.S. And lately there's been news that platforms like Zoom have been censoring some speech even. So what do you think about this responsibility or lack thereof of these big tech platforms when it comes to respecting the digital rights of people, especially marginalized groups? 
So, you know, frankly, I don't think uh, platforms, which on the one hand are claiming that they are platforms because they are neutral and that they don't play with our speech, right? And that's why they, they themselves are claiming legal protections and saying they shouldn't be held liable for the speech that is carried out on their platforms. I don't think they have any business right or any like how you know how dare they sort of do some of these things frankly just before we started this i was quickly reading up that uh, there was supposed to be uh like a workshop or something on zoom in the us i think it was in california and the subject matter had something to do with gender and racial justice i don't remember the whole thing but basically the organizers suddenly found that the meeting had just been cancelled by Zoom. And to me, that's shocking, right? Like that's, that is classic censorship. That is what governments used to do and still do. And no private corporation has any business stepping in and going through the list of what kinds of meetings are going to happen on its platform and then say, oh, I don't think this should be done. Or, you know, we don't know again. We don't know what is the collusion between governments and corporations, to be honest. And where, like, what is happening behind the scenes to result in this kind of thing. Uh, similarly, we find in other countries also, like, even platforms that are supposed to be end-to-end -end encrypted, you know, there's been a way in which governments have gotten access to supposedly encrypted communications. How does that happen? So I think this is all very complicated and just not okay. And you know what happens when you're from a marginalized group and it happens to you is you actually don't know how to fight back against this. I mean, I think all of us are struggling, but I think marginalized communities really genuinely are like honestly don't know how they can deal with situations like this right uh, and it's pretty dangerous because this kind of stuff has been used also to put um, you know activists into jail to accuse activists of sedition etc etc including a hell of a lot of grassroots activists and with that though what can we as activists and advocates do we whether we belong to a to these yeah. marginalized groups or we are allies what then do we do especially when it's the for those of us who may not belong to these groups how do we also show our support when they themselves start to get disheartened by the ways that these platforms and the internet are infringing on their rights to express themselves i think the first thing we have to do sarah is i think we have to speak out because you know again the higher the cost for that person to speak out, it's relatively a lower cost for someone else who doesn't face exactly the same risks and dangers to speak out, right? So I think in many countries or among many groups, they're using that kind of strategy, which is let the group that is most vulnerable or most at risk not risk any more by speaking out, but let allies actually fill that vacuum or that silence, right, with speech and who are at lower risk and really push it, etc. really ask for like platform accountability, government accountability. So I think that's what uh, allies really need to do. It's like really speak up like never before. 
since we are all connected and all in that same space and all that kind of thing, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other things that can be done. But this is, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is really people who are at slightly lower risk pushing that accountability online. Speaking up, and a lot of people are, of course, on board on this idea. I saw this word on your side point of view. It says reboot. It's asking for the rebooting of tech so it works for all genders and sexualities. So once tech is rebooted in such a way, can you share a vision of what that looks like so that it will inspire people to speak up? Like what would a rebooted tech in your mind and in your vision look like? Okay. See, I think a rebooted tech, first of all, would work for a very diverse bunch of people. I'll give you a small example. Now we are doing workshops with domestic workers. But many of the domestic workers we work with are not literate. They've never been to school. So we use voice very extensively with them, right? So to my mind, a rebooted tech would not privilege one language. Like it sounds very utopian, but let me say it anyway. <laughs> it wouldn't privilege like one language above others. I mean, imagine if you could go to a Facebook, seriously. Like suppose we could just go to the face to Facebook and then the you know, first sort of screen said, hey, what language would you like to use? or whatever, right? You click something and then it sort of says, hey, would you like to use voice? Would you like to use text, right? That already opens it up for so many more people who don't feel like they have to be able to read and write in order to be online. So, you know, and again, I'm gonna come back to sex workers who have found the most creative ways to deal with their lack of literacy. So for example, when they have to save phone numbers, you know, because they can't read. If you can't read, you can't write down someone's name. How will you read it as a phone number? So they use symbols, they use flowers, right? Like someone is a rose, someone is a lotus. Apart from being super practical, I think it's super charming, but I also think it's nice, right? Like, so why do we always privilege the written word? Why not symbols? Why not voice? Why not visual? You know, if we can imagine the world as not just getting information through one sense or one mode, but being more like not a universe, but a multiverse, not like, you know, like multimodal kind of stuff. To me, that already, like at a very fundamental level, right, tells people that all kinds of people belong here. Uh, yeah. And again, I'm thinking also of like women with disabilities who we work with. So again, you know, if, if everything is too visual or only oriented towards one sense, then again, women who can't see can't really access that. So to me, it's like the uh, future going forward rebooted is multimodal, multidimensional, multi-format, multi-sensorial, like very diverse in its way of being. And speaking of that diversity, what then is the role of us here in the Asia Pacific, wherein, where commonly a lot of these technologies are situated in the West or in the global well, North, where these are, where a lot of the companies and the platforms that we are using are based. And so, to reiterate, in the Asia Pacific, what do, where can we come in to 
get one step closer to the vision that you were speaking so about? So I think it's really interesting, Sarah, that, you know, in India today, uh, the biggest, the most widely used uh, application is WhatsApp, which is, of course, made in Silicon Valley. But the second was actually TikTok till it got banned, right, which was made in China. Mm -hmm. And it's super interesting because in the last two years, what we've seen is that if you step outside the biggest cities and go to sort of the next level of cities, which in India is still like pretty big, you know, people out <laughs> outside the four or five biggest cities, none of them are actually using Facebook and Instagram or sort of the US based or the Silicon Valley based ecosystem that we use. They are actually using much more, uh, you know, uh, TikTok, Likey, Bego, Halo, uh, I think it's called UC Browser, Share It or Share Chat, which are all made basically in China, right? So, but it's very interesting because it's the first example of sort of breaking that big Silicon Valley monopoly. And regardless of sort of geopolitics and all that, right? So I think to me, this already indicates that there's a huge potential actually for different parts of the world to be making applications. The other day I was on a webinar and they used an application called AirMeet like Jitsi or Zoom, I mean, it's proprietary. And I said, hey, I've never heard of this before. Where is this from? And they were like, oh, it's from India. And I was like, really? So, you know, I think the trick is that you can't have just one kind of person, one kind of body making uh, software or platforms or apps because the human tendency or bias is to make things for people like yourself. That's just a human inclination. So if we had like, you know, people making apps like in different parts of the world or even like connecting like in India, say, for instance, you know, if we if developers could collaborate with marginalized groups, right, get them to sort of, you know, just simply visualize things, etc. Use those as design templates, right, and then refine. I think we could get a hell of a lot more diversity. So I think the trick is to shift outside the U.S. This rebooted, inclusive, diverse technology is quite an inspiring vision. We will work together with you on this, and we look forward to reading, reading more of your digital stories about this. Thank you so much for your time, Bishaka. Thank you so much for having me. This was really stimulating and such a joy. Thanks so much, Sarah and Red. We talked about something quite fundamental in that conversation, and this is the aspiration of many people that technology will kind of solve or mitigate many of the problems in the physical space. Unfortunately, what's happening is that these problems in the physical space are even exacerbated in the digital one. So, for example, we have a gender gap in the real world, and when you go to the digital world, the jobs are still unequal. The pay is still unequal. And there should be no tangible reason that that be the case. Harassment and threats of violence and even actual violence are more targeted against minorities in the real world. And this is also reflected in the digital one. So this gap or this kind of reflection of physical and digital realities, this is something that 
our guest, Bishaka, she's been thinking about writing about and speaking about these things for quite some time now. And it was really quite the pleasure to hear her insights about these issues. Yeah, totally agree. I, for one, am very interested in her idea of rebooting the internet and challenging a lot of the base assumptions of how we use technology and how technology uh, is able to share these stories and post these stories online. So, for instance, we have cases where the base or the original voice when you're using voice apps is always female because psychologically, or that's what they say, it is more soothing to hear a female voice versus a male voice, which then creates this idea that women are more submissive, docile. Yeah. 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 All of these, I, um, I wasn't sure which word to use. Yeah. But it does fuel that stereotype. And it's such a small thing that maybe in everyday use we wouldn't notice. But then those kinds of things pile up, especially, and that's just with women. What more with uh, Asia Pacific voices? whose um, our accents and our languages are not inherent in the spaces where these technologies were created or are being advanced in the first place. We're seeing a lot more definitely in our region, but there is more work to do there. A lot to talk about, a lot to read about. Um, check out the links in the description of this podcast video or audio version. There are descriptions in there. Um, please read and learn more about this issue. And of course, to watch past episodes of Pretty Good Podcast, just go to engagemedia.org slash podcast. So there you will find links to the audio and video versions of this podcast. And the audio version is also available in apps wherever you listen to your podcast. And so see you next episode. 